Welcome to a special episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tamanini. On today's episode, as I've been teasing on today on Broadway throughout the week, I am talking with professor and author Jordan Schildkraut, whose new book, In the Long Run, A Cultural History of Broadway's Hit Plays, is available now. It is a fantastic read. He chronicles a century of long-running plays, which he defines as shows that have run for more than 1,000 performances. We get into a great conversation about some shows you've heard of, like Born Yesterday and Barefoot in the Park and Death Trap. But we also talk about some ones that you might not know of, like Abby's Irish Rose or Butterflies Are Free. It was a really fantastic conversation. I'm excited for you to hear it. In the show notes, we will have information on where you can purchase the book. And I think it would make an excellent gift to either a theater lover in your life or to yourself, especially right now when you don't have much else to do. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jordan Schildkraut. In your book, you break down the long-running shows kind of by decade. And first off, I, I want to know kind of where that premise for structuring the book came from. But also, were there phases to this as you started to look at the decades? Are those fairly clean lines of delineation between the types of things that we see and the, the, the types of runs that we see and the content of the shows? Right. So um, one of the main uh, instigations for the book was noticing that if you look at what work has been popular on Broadway, what has really run for thousands of performances, drawn millions of people, uh, if you look at the musicals, they tend to be shows that people are still familiar with, that are still done, yeah. uh, that have a certain level of respect. I mean, just shows that, you know, whether you're a theater maker or a fan, that you have some familiarity with. And generally speaking, this is not true with the plays, that even shows from previous eras, from, you know, Showboat to Guys and Dolls, people are familiar with, but not so much something like Abe's Irish Rose or Mary Mary by Jean Kerr, both of which were enormously popular in their time. And so really, I was curious. I was interested in what made those shows so popular uh, when they were initially running and then sort of what happened to them. What's the life of a play in our culture and how does a play, you know, more or less die? How does it sort of fade away from any sort of, you know, cultural presence? And uh, the way that I ended up breaking down the book is that I, first of all, needed to have some sort of uh, standard. What do I count as a long running hit? Mm -hmm. And for this, I actually just kind of turned to the industry itself. Uh, that reading articles from previous eras, like in newspapers, just like, you know, the theater columns and so forth. Uh, but also seeing, you know, how does, I don't know, say like a publication like Variety still use a thousand performances as a particular kind of marker. And so like one of the things I talk about in the book is that for, you know, decades now, at the end of each uh, season, Variety publishes the whole list of every play and musical yeah. that has run over a thousand performances, right? Um, and so, you know, even though it is a little bit arbitrary, like what's the actual yeah. difference between a show that ran for 999 performances right, right, and 1,001 right. performances, uh, it's one that's accepted in the industry. Well, and you talk about the idea that plays can kind of fade into obscurity. And that, as I was reading through the book a little bit, especially because like I've always known the name Life with Father or Tobacco mm. Road, just as like a trivia question, but I didn't know much about them. And as you start to compare those to musicals from those same eras, we still see those shows. And what's interesting to me is, is that we still see musicals from those eras, warts and all. And we kind of explain mm. away that 
those musicals were from a different time. Yes, some things are dated. They might make you cringe a little bit, but they're from a different time, so we accept them. And so it got me thinking, what's the difference with a play? Why don't we see these plays? Yes, they might be dated. They might either be quaint or maybe even be a little uh, offensive by today's standards. But what were you able to boil anything down to what the difference was between why we're willing to overlook those things in musicals as opposed to plays? I mean, it's a really good question. And, you know, the theory that I have, uh, or at least the way that I've been thinking about it, is that to some extent, um, we tend to think of musicals as entertainment. We don't necessarily take them, you know, seriously, even though, of course, they can win Pulitzer Prizes and speak to very serious issues and so forth. But within their history, right, they've kind of been positioned just as popular entertainment. And I think that the straight play has usually been considered a little bit more highbrow. Right, that it's to appeal to uh, more yeah. of an intellectual capacity or to somehow be taken more seriously. And therefore, do we hold it to a kind of higher critical standard? So you're right, things in musicals that, you know, uh, you know, not even just today, but even in their time might have been thought of as sexist or racist. Um, do they get a bit of a pass? And do we hold plays to a different standard? Uh, which, again, I'm not saying is a bad thing, right? But it is, I, I think, a difference in how plays tend to be treated uh, just in terms of show business. Yeah. And starting back, as you break down your book by uh, by decades, you kind of use the line of demarcation as, uh, you know, the 1910s. But 1918, you kind of look from 1918 to 2018, going all the way into the conclusion of the book. Why that I mean I know that I, I mean I know kind of that's the the birth of these long running shows that's when the first one started was it just easy that Lightning was the first thousand performance play on the list and that's where you started or, or where did that come from Yeah no it's exactly right that you know initially I was looking at uh you know the phenomenon of the so called long run like what did that really mean even in the middle of the 19th century because that concept does emerge at least in the you know historical records I've been able to find sometime like in the 1840s but oh, really? in terms yeah, uh, but in terms of like a the actual like super long run, right? The thing that lasts for a thousand consecutive performances within its run, uh, that's something that really emerges because the very nature of how theater gets made changes around the turn of the century. And so the difference between, you know, what used to be called like the combination company that would like, you know, be on the road. Uh, and then of course the way that the advent of cinema changes how theater gets produced. But a lot of it is also about the centralization of theater production in New York, the whole concept of Broadway uh, really becoming solidified by, you know, that second decade of the 20th century. So the conditions are right, especially after World War One, And so it's really in 1918 that this play called Lightning, uh, which starred an actor by the name of Frank Bacon, uh, was the first show of any kind, play or musical, to run over a thousand consecutive performances on Broadway. So part of what I'm looking at is, yeah, what sort of created the conditions that allowed that to happen, or for that matter, even the desire for that to happen. Um, and then really, how did that notion of longevity the sort of how the play exists over an extended period of time, uh, really play into what that play was, what it meant, why it was popular. And then, you know, the reason why I call the book a cultural history is because I'm looking at the play not just as a cultural product, but also something that just exists within that cultural context. Uh, That's part of what makes its meaning. So that really does begin in 1918. 
And then I do, you know, as you say, follow it decade by decade, sort of seeing uh, the rise of particular plays, but also just the whole concept of the long running hit and how that sort of reaches its pinnacle in the 1940s um, and really persists up through the 1980s. And then after the 1980s, there's not a single uh, non-musical play that yeah. runs for over a thousand consecutive performances. So it's really that rise and fall. Um, and I will say this, that the passing of Neil Simon in 2018 uh, in some ways did seem like the right end mark for the study that this playwright who represented uh, really was the main representation of those sort of like popular mainstream hits uh, that his passing kind of did mark the end of an era. And so for me, it made a very sort of neat uh, century from 2018 uh, back to 1918. Yeah, and with the passing of Neil Simon, the last play uh, on the top 25 or so to be, you know, a long running uh, play was Brighton Beach Memoirs, and that opened in 1983. And like you said, there hasn't been a long-running play since then. Do you, do you see that as kind of the evolution of the cultural side of plays on Broadway? Or do you see that more as an evolution of the financial structure of plays on Broadway or just commercial theater in general? Definitely both. Uh, and in fact, in the final chapter, that's really what I focus on, sort of what has happened from, you know, 1986 when Brighton Beach closes through to, you know, the moment that I was writing it in. And some of the things that I focus on is that, it, you know, at that time in the 1980s, Broadway was facing a crisis. If you look back and read like how the New York Times and Variety and all the other kind of like uh, places where the industry gets discussed, we're talking about the current moment. Uh, Broadway was really in a crisis. Uh, the uh, attendance dropped by millions and producers made up for this by raising ticket prices. And this changed uh, the very nature of who was going to the theater. Mm -hmm. And we became much more reliant upon tourism. And so one of the changes that we see, for example, like uh, I believe around the start of the 1980s, that tourists accounted for maybe 40 percent of the Broadway ticket buyer. And uh, it shifts then to become like 60 percent which is pretty significant. And in general, uh, the ticket buying tourist is interested in, first of all, musicals, because they are often seen as more accessible, mm -hmm. uh, but also that they want to see the proven commodity, that they're less interested in taking a chance on something. And so the you know Phantom of the Opera and Lion King, uh, Chicago and so forth, uh, these continue to run mostly because of that particular ticket buying audience. The street play, however, um, still is pretty much a local audience that for the non-musical play on Broadway, it's 60% uh, people within the New York area. And so the nature of who is going to Broadway, what Broadway is, changed. Uh, one of the phenomena I talk about is, you know, the so-called Disneyfication, which I don't necessarily mean in a pejorative way, but simply that what Broadway was changed in the 1990s after Beauty and the Beast and then The Lion King. Uh, who Broadway was for changed. Yeah, and it, it's it's so interesting when you talk about musicals are more or perhaps more familiar to theater goers and tourists specifically. But you know, even if you carry that forward to the plays that we see get produced more often on Broadway, we see, and I don't have the numbers to back me up. So if you mm. know that I'm in, I'm wrong, please tell me. But it sure seems like we see a lot more revivals of plays than new plays on Broadway. And there's obviously a split there. But what's interesting about it is, is that you have this list of proven long running plays from the mm -hmm. past 100 years. And yet 
none of those are the ones that often get revived. And obviously we've seen some of them be revived, including one that's getting ready to, you know, presumably come back when Broadway does with Plaza Suite. But it's mm-hmm. Shakespeare and O'Neill and Miller or Chekhov. Those are the ones that we see so often. Were you able to kind of latch on to a reason why these plays, even some that have a fairly recognizable name like the seven year itch or um or amadeus you know don't get revived more often i mean again the caveat of torch song and equus and and stuff like that having fairly recent ones but for the most part it's been a long time since a lot of these have been on broadway and some of them have never been revived at all yeah it's absolutely true that uh the plays that are most often revived on broadway are the ones that we consider canonical the more esteemed plays and so these include things like long day's journey tonight cat on a hot tin roof death of a salesman um and those plays in their way were successful but none of them not a single one of them ran over a thousand performances in their initial Broadway outings. Um, so the plays that have been revived amongst those popular plays, a thousand plus performance plays, uh, either have won the Tony Award or Pulitzer Prize, and so they had that kind of uh, esteem, or they were written by Neil Simon, which you know <laughs> the audience still reads yeah, yeah, yeah. as having you know that it's like okay, that's proof that we're going to have a good evening in the theater. Um, so the plays that were popular without being esteemed do tend to be forgotten. Uh, some of them, however, were esteemed and are still esteemed. And so something like uh, Born Yesterday or Harvey mm-hmm. are still, I think, like relatively well-esteemed, although they weren't always. They kind of had to go through a period of a revitalization that they weren't just dismissed as uh, middle-brow hokum, uh, but could actually be taken seriously as good American plays. Uh, but one of the things that I do talk about is One of the uh, factors for popularity is how well a particular play speaks to its current moment, that it speaks to the particular here and now of Mm -hmm. its production. And while this serves it in terms of its popularity in that moment, it can often mean that it fades afterwards, that it does, that it is not seen as transcending its particular moment. Um, So, you know, I want to be clear, like with a lot of these plays, I'm not claiming, for example, that A.B.'s Irish Rose is a great play that deserves to be revived. In certain ways, I'm not sure that it it should be, you know, except maybe as a cultural sort of curiosity. Uh, But nevertheless, that to me doesn't mean that it should be dismissed. That to me, there's still something really interesting and uh, maybe even something to learn about looking at, well, what made that play run for five years in the 1920s? What did it have to say to that moment? and to me, that's actually a really interesting question to ask. And I certainly, you know, found a lot of things I found interesting in trying to find the answer to it. Yeah. And and it's so interesting when you talk about the idea that plays speak to the moment and sometimes the moment that they were written and doesn't translate so much to the modern sensibilities of whatever audience is watching them, you know, during a revival or whatever. When you extrapolate that to to musicals i think that there's so much of a fantasy world in so many musicals even if it's set in a specific time and place mm-hmm. just the act of singing and dancing on stage is a bit fantastic uh and i wonder if that has something to do why in that that first question that i asked where the musicals from a certain era have lasted but the plays haven't Right. Well, it's a good point. I mean, in certain ways, you know, uh, you're right with musicals. It's its own genre with its own kind of conventions. And are these conventions that we still recognize and enjoy? Yeah. Uh, while with plays, yeah, a lot of the works that were popular in previous eras now seem old fashioned that in a way that we don't find as pleasant, that we're not used to seeing in the same way. A lot of the long running hits are from the era in which, you know, plays were three acts. 
which is very rare nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the very structure itself sort of changes. Uh, but, you know, the other thing that I do want to address, because it goes back to the other question that you, you know, that you asked previously is um, the other thing that really changes, I think, about the position of the play, the non-musical play within American culture, is that there are still popular plays, uh, but just they live at a different address now. Yeah. That while Broadway is still very centralized in terms of musicals, uh, that most plays, so for example, take, oh, I don't know, something like uh, Doll's House Part Two. Yeah. Okay. Actually did not have an incredibly successful Broadway run. In fact, I believe it closed early. But after its closure, it's then done at dozens of regional yeah. theaters. Well, and, and, and Lauren Gunderson is the most produced playwright in America, and yet she's never had a show on Broadway. Right. Excellent point. Right. And so if you look at those TCG lists of what the most popularly produced plays are around the country, uh, that's actually really instructive because what happens is that with the rise of the non-for-profit theater, the non-profit theaters and the regional theaters, mm-hmm. particularly in the late 60s, early 70s, that the system of producing plays becomes decentralized. And therefore, that kind of impact, that um, density that's required for the long running hit, because if you're going to run for a thousand performances, it can't just be the regular playgoer. It has to appeal to people beyond those that make a habit of going to the theater. Um, And I think that that has, frankly, just become more national rather than just a New York phenomenon. So in some ways, there are still popular plays, but the phenomenon of the long running Broadway hit play, that is something whose time, it seems for now at least, has passed. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I hadn't thought about it that way. But one thing that I, as you were kind of talking about some of these older plays that have had their moment and then maybe have kind of revitalization, but haven't necessarily seen the success on Broadway, you mentioned Harvey and Born Yesterday. And those have had revivals in the past decade, but neither of them bid well. Both ran for less than 75 performances. I wonder, and you kind of mentioned this in some of the chapters in, in the book, and maybe it might have even been in, in the Born Yesterday part. How does the fact that not only was the rise of movies uh, impactful on on plays, but also the film adaptation of plays, is it so much that we see the stars of of these movie adaptations of plays that when they come back to Broadway, if they come back to Broadway, and even if they don't, we just don't want, we have that picture so fixed in our head that it becomes almost impossible or almost sacrilegious for us to actually go see someone else play those roles. Right. Well, so it's actually a really great point. And uh, I tend to think of it actually as a double-edged sword. So like, let's take Born Yesterday, because I think it's a great example that you bring up, uh, that the role of Billy Dawn, right, the central character in Born Yesterday is mm-hmm. famously played by Judy Holliday. Right. And she actually sticks with the production for hundreds of performances. She played that role over a thousand you know, times. She didn't stick with the entire initial Broadway run. There were other actresses that took over their role, but really it was her role. She was, uh, you know, continually associated with it. She then makes the movie version and wins the Academy Award for it, right? Beating out actresses like uh, like Betty Davis uh, in All About Eve, which wow. is considered another like great cinematic triumph. But Judy Holliday wins for her performance in Born Yesterday. And so to a certain extent, the success of her performance in the film helps to keep the play in circulation. So in other words, uh, let's imagine you're running, you know, your... Um, community theater group somewhere in, I don't know, Ohio, where I grew up. I did um, as well. I'm an Ohioan oh, as well. So there you go. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, and 
so, I mean, and that experience in some ways of growing up in a place that was not part of the New York theater scene, but yet had this relationship to it, right? How did I know these plays? How did I learn about them? And often with musicals, you learn about it through the cast album. But with plays, you might learn about it through the film version. And so if a play has a good film version, it tends to keep it in circulation in a certain way. It tends to draw in new audiences. So let's say you see Born Yesterday with Judy Holliday. Um, does that then make you want to stage it yourself? Is it an appealing role that the actress in your community wants to play? And so it keeps the play on the boards. However, you know, a play like Gemini, which has a notoriously bad film version, I think that actually hurt the longevity of the play because it tends then to not keep it in circulation and to not make it an attractive property that people want to reproduce. Um, but with the example of Judy Holiday, it's interesting that when the play is revived, so for example, with Madeleine Kahn in the 1980s, mm -hmm. uh, and then again, it was revived, you know, not too long ago, now in the 21st Nina, century. Yeah. Nina Anaryanda. Yeah, exactly. Um, that both actresses are inevitably compared to Judy Holiday and usually suffer by comparison. But nevertheless, both of those actresses, you know, were Tony nominated in those roles. And so it's a bit of a double-edged sword that the film version, a successful film version, can help in certain ways, but also perhaps harm in other ways, because that then becomes the main representation that people still are fond of and yeah. cling to. Yeah, I think the same is true. It's hard to see anybody other than Jimmy Stewart play Elwood and uh, Harvey. You know, it's that's just who you always see uh, in my mind's eye, at least when I think of that show. But um, kind of looking at the book as a whole, obviously the the research is meticulous, and I love in at the end of each chapter. Not only do you include what the 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 list of the long running shows is at the end of each. Um, at the end of each chapter, but you also put all of your footnotes for that chapter in there. So I appreciate that. That was uh, quite fascinating. Um, but was there something that especially popped out as surprising to you about the evolution of a long running play on Broadway? Obviously, the, the book is full of, of great stories, but was there one that kind of stuck out to you that was either surprising in the fact that you didn't expect it or something that you felt like you should have known that you didn't? Oh, okay. So um, the play that when I began this research that I had zero knowledge of, like perhaps I'd heard the title once or maybe twice, but knew literally nothing about, uh, is a play from actually the World War II era called The Voice of the Turtle by okay. John Van Bruten. And indeed, when I would talk to colleagues, either academics or professional theater makers about this particular research project, they would ask about what plays I was writing about. And inevitably, the title that just stymied most people uh, was The Voice mm -hmm. of the Turtle. And this is still one of the top 10 longest running straight plays of all time. It was an enormous success. Yeah. Uh, and you can every once in a while find like a small revival of it here and there, uh, but it tends to be pretty largely forgotten. And so in that case, it was interesting for me to learn about it, especially because it is tied so much to the history of World War II, that the play, uh, for those that may not be familiar with it, uh, that it takes place over a weekend. And it's actually during the war, and there's a sergeant who's on furlough in New York City, but because there's a, a hotel shortage during the war, uh, he ends up sort of sleeping in the living room of this young actress. And of course, they're deeply attracted to each other, but she resists and doesn't want to have the affair. And it really becomes sort of this very intimate, um, comic, yet also kind of sexy and ultimately dramatic uh, play about this couple and their relationship over a weekend. So um, 
seeing how that spoke to an audience during the war, I actually found quite moving. And there are certain articles that I found about the uh, company giving benefit performances, particularly for people in the oh, military, wow. uh, sometimes, sometimes like wounded uh, service people that were in the hospitals were actually brought to the theater. And then the service people would be interviewed about what they thought about this play. And so the fact that they saw themselves and their experiences reflected in how these characters were talking about their experiences, both at war and on the home front, uh, was really sort of illuminating to me. And it showed me how the something even just like mainstream and commercial, like a Broadway play, can really engage its moment and really speak to its moment and, and its culture more broadly uh, than just, oh, you bought a ticket, you went to see a play, and then you forget about it. It really, you know, reached its audience. And to the point where the army itself, the army had like its own sort of publications, uh, they published an edition of the script of The Voice of the Turtle, uh, and that was distributed to people in the military. And so it really had its a story intertwined with, frankly, American history itself. Yeah, and that's fascinating. That to me was sort of fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I never, I've never heard of that show. I've never heard that story. That's, uh, it's really remarkable. Did you? I mean, how did you read all of these plays or, or or many of them when you were writing the book? Absolutely, and you know, read them and reread them, watched the film <laughs> versions. Uh, so I mean, there's actually a total of 26 straight plays that have run over a thousand performances in all of Broadway history. Uh, the book only covers 15 of them because I had to have some kind of focus, right? Sure, sure, sure. I just so just so I could go deeper. Uh, but yeah, I read all 26 of those plays. And uh, I, I will say this, some of them are a bit of a slog to get through, um, but nevertheless, there's still something of interest to me about them. Again, because I always had this question in my mind, like, what is it that made these plays run? What made them popular? Um, and so with that question in the back of my head all the time, that kind of took me through the reading of some of these plays, even if, frankly, some of them aren't very good. Um, they were still sort of interesting to me on that level. Was there one... Other than the ones that maybe, you know, we still talk about Torch Song, Equus, uh, you know, Amadeus, Death Trap, the ones that we kind of still see and know about culturally. Is there is there one that as you read it still you thought resonated for a modern audience? Mm, that's actually a really good question. Uh, I mean, you're right that a lot of the ones that I think resonate are still somehow in circulation. And indeed, like when I talk about those plays, even something like a genre piece like Death Trap, uh, to think about, well, why does that still resonate? Why has that carried on in a way that Gemini has not? But are there any that have been overlooked that really should be revived? Um, or even just read, even if it wouldn't work in a physical yeah. production, just something that people could read. You know, my actual answer to that is probably going to be butterflies are free, hmm. um, which is still known a little bit. Yeah. There was a version that had Goldie Hawn in it. Um, and it's a play that, you know, in my research, you can still find some like, you know, amateur productions of it, maybe a college every once in a while, that sort of thing, or like maybe a small professional company. Uh, but as far as I know, there hasn't been like a major revival of it. And the reason that you know, that might be my choice is that in some ways it's a very standard romantic comedy, right? Uh, it's sort of about a uh, boy meets girl. There's a disapproving mother. The young man overcomes the mother's disapproval and ends up with the girl. Like, you know, it's a very standard kind of romantic comedy. Yeah. Uh, but the difference here is that the young man at the center of the play is blind. And part of what's interesting to me is to see, well, how do we stage disability? Uh, and how was that sort of depicted in the 1960s through the early 70s when it ran on Broadway? Uh, how does that resonate for us now? And especially if you look at other plays that, you know, might not have run over a thousand performances, but were still very successful, like Children of a Lesser God. How 
issues of disability are reflected in these very popular works um, and how much, I don't know, those tropes still exist in our popular entertainment and how much maybe it's really changed in the past 50 years or so. Um, and the truth is, like, it's also pretty well written, I think, just in terms of the comedy of it, the witty lines, the structure. It's with a lot of these plays, even if they're not great plays, usually I found something to admire just in the craft of them that they tend to be well-wrought plays. And uh, and I would argue that that's the case with, you know, a show like Butterflies Are Free, maybe more than, sort of than, you know, some of the others. Yeah. I I'm, am a little surprised as I look through this list that we have not seen a recent production of Angel Street. Because uh, mm. I feel like that kind of resonates a lot with, I mean, just the term gaslight that comes from it uh, has been such a part of the popular conversation over the past few years. And I'm surprised that one hasn't been more readily available at least if we haven't gotten a you know an off-broadway kind of uh not-for-profit run of that one but mm-hmm. uh but that one kind of stuck out to me as something that i would think and i i actually saw a college production not that long ago within mm-hmm. the past 10 years that um still works it still holds up as yeah. you know kind of in the same way i think death trap probably does because it's it's a it's we know that era of kind of mystery noirish type of stuff even though they're not necessarily you know set there you know or written there they're written at different times but i i think that that still has some some legs as well yeah no i actually think that's an excellent choice you're right and and i actually agree with that i te- i tend to be a fan of the genre of the thriller the murder mystery that sort of thing uh and often because they are really well crafted and the way that you know even perhaps you know some might dismiss them as melodramatic but they're very well plotted that's kind of central to the yeah. genre and i agree like seeing especially maybe someone who didn't do you know what we might call a traditional production of it but maybe try to bring a contemporary lens on it to like yeah. play with the aesthetic of it i mean i think that could be fascinating especially right, right because the term gaslighting has become more politically prominent. And of course, the play itself centers on the kind of like the woman in peril Mm -hmm. and how, you know, our notions of feminism and the Me Too movement have changed that significantly as well. And so, yeah, I think a modern take on that would be fascinating. I I don't know that I want to see an Evo Van Hove production of Death Trap, though. That one might be a little (laughs) going a little far for me, but uh, but I'll take it. But um, I'll agree with you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, Jordan, this is, uh, I thoroughly have enjoyed the book uh, as as far as I've gotten through it so far, as I tell listeners all the time, I'm a super slow reader, but I, uh, I'm fascinated by the book. I love these stories and I've had a fantastic time talking to you about it. Um, is there anything else that in the book, as people are reading it, that they should keep an eye, like a, a little story or a little nugget, just something small that can kind of give them an insight as to what this book is all about. So for me, one of the things I had in mind when I wrote the book is um, actually begin the book with an anecdote about my own experience growing up and attending community theater mm-hmm. and that there's a certain pleasure in the mainstream and just the plays that are popular and maybe aren't, you know, award winning or terribly well respected and maybe don't even get a lot of, you know, scholarly attention, not the sort of play you would ever read in a college seminar, for example, in some, you know, like a theater program or conservatory. But nevertheless, um, they are part of our theatrical art form and our cultural tradition. And so to me, that makes them worthy of study. And so one of the things that I had in mind is, you know, there are still people producing theater all across the country that often people talk about, you know, the death of the theater and so forth. And often in the theater world, certainly that I'm part of, you know, it can be a little bit Broadway-centric, New York-centric, that sort of thing. But there are community theaters across the country that are still producing these plays, talented people. And in some ways, I wrote this book for them, that if you're doing 
a production of Barefoot in the Park. And you actually just kind of want to know a bit more about its history or see what critics had to say about it or maybe have some deeper insight into um, what really makes that play tick. Then you can find this chapter and hopefully you'll find it fun. You'll find it interesting, maybe a little bit illuminating. Uh, and that's really my hope for it. So I'd say to readers, you know, if you are someone who's a theater fan or a theater maker and you just kind of want to know a bit more about these kinds of plays that don't necessarily get a whole lot of attention in the other platforms in which we discuss theater, um, you know, that's really what I'm hoping to fill. That's what I'm hoping to do. Uh, but other than that, I would just say that uh, one of the other things I find most interesting in the book is reading what the performers had to say. What's it like yeah. to perform a role a thousand times? <laughs> uh, and that I found, you know, fascinating, the combination of everything like from uh, boredom to feeling like they're getting deeper into it, to feeling like it's a new show every night, that it really points to the liveness of theater, that it's something that exists in time. And that's part of what also makes it precious. I love that. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for uh, talking about this. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed this and uh, look forward to finishing the book, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I'm a fan of your show, and I appreciate the invitation. Thank you.